Good morning. It's good to uh, gather together as the church this morning. It's good to uh, celebrate, a lot to celebrate. Um, every week we celebrate Jesus. We celebrate what he's done. We celebrate the power of the resurrection. We celebrate who he is and how much he loved the world so much that he gave himself. Um, but today we also celebrate moms. So just happy Mother's Day. Thank you. It's interesting that on a day where um, Jesus corrects people, we celebrate mothers who probably do the most correction in our households. They do a lot of correcting fathers and children. And so I'm just thankful for mothers who, uh, who lead in that, correcting and do it in a, in a way that it, because they love, because they love the family and because they love those around them. And so I'm yeah, just thankful for mothers today and uh, I'll get a chance to, to see mine later. And so I would just encourage you um, to be thankful for the many good gifts that we have. And one of the gifts is mothers who love us and encourage us. And so um, this morning we are continuing in the gospel of Mark. Remember, we can get used to saying that and we can just be like the gospel, the gospel of Mark. And we can forget that gospel really means good news. And so when we hold this up, when we stand to read it, we're honoring the fact that this is, this is the best news that we can hear. For mothers, it's better than a happy Mother's Day from your children. It's the very best news that you can hear today. And so I pray that God would do that. That even as we hear some words of correction, which none of us really run to. Can we just be honest about that? Like, we're not looking for ways to be corrected. Uh, but thankfully, God is gracious and kind and has given some of us a spirit that, that yields to that quickly and some of us a spirit that will eventually get there. But either way... We're thankful for correction. And so as Jesus brings these corrective things to the religious leaders, remember we've been in, in his discourse to the leaders for a couple weeks now. Last week we took a break, but we're coming back to it. And this is his last uh, public teaching. He's going to go from here, and he's going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and be alone with his disciples and be alone with God. And then he's going to go to the upper room, and he's going to give them some last teachings. But as far as to the public... To all those who would want to come and see him, this is his last teaching. And, and so let's press in. Let's hear what he says. This final sermon of Jesus is to call the religious to repentance. So for us, we meet that wicked today. Like we, we've gathered together as the body of Christ so we are practicing some sort of religion today. And Jesus calls the religious to repentance. And so if we ever move away from this gospel of grace that requires both repentance and belief, then, we're, then we need to hear this today. And we have. We've already confessed it in our prayer of confession. Listen, that, there's something to the way that we tell, uh, not the whole story because we can't get it all in an hour and a half, but the, but from the very beginning of our time together, we're telling this beautiful story of who God is and what he's done and what that means for us. And so Jesus is going to come and he's going to give some correction, particularly to the scribes, but it is to the religious leaders. We need to remember that um, it's not just the irreligious who need Jesus. 
It's, it's the religious also. There are irreligious and religious lost. People who don't practice any religion and know that they're lost and people who are practicing religion and yet not sitting and resting on the gospel, the good news of the work of Jesus that he has completed it. So today we can find ourselves in those categories. Jesus himself said in Mark 2.17, way back a long time ago when we were reading it, it says, And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Sinners have a lot of different looks. Sinners can look like they're doing all the wrong things, and they can look like they're doing all the right things. But the good news is that Jesus came not for those who had their own righteousness, but for sinners like you and I. And so today I pray that we would hear that. You see, we have a lot of stories in Mark about Jesus going to the religious, irreligious. He goes to those that are on the outskirts, those that are outcasts and have been discriminated against, and he calls them in. But he also goes to those that are the in-class, those who are esteemed, those who are religious. And many of his teachings are to them, calling them to the same thing that he calls those that are very evident sinners too, and that's a gospel of repentance. Here the great physician is exposing the self-righteous sinners need to be made well. Thank God. Thank God he does that. How does he do that? Listen, I want you to press in with me today. He corrects their theology and and their doctrine, and he corrects their worship. Another way that you could say that is he's correcting their orthodoxy. What they believe. But he's also correcting their orthopraxy. How they're practicing this thing going out. And so today we need to hear both of those things. Because the only one who's done it perfectly is him. And we, gotta, we have to rest in him. But then he tells us to emulate him. To follow him. To walk in his ways. To obey his commands. By the power of his spirit that's already brought us to a place of repentance. He fills us with his righteousness so that we can go and walk it. And so today we want to hear that correction. And then be able to take some of that correction to others too. In the same way that Jesus does it. In a loving way where he calls to repentance. We pray with me? God, we're just so grateful. Even, even as we hear hard words, Lord. And it just seems like that's, that's what you've been giving us lately. Hard words that are filled with love, Lord. Hard words because you do not want us to sit in our complacency, sit in our own righteousness, but you call us to repentance and you call us to be filled with your spirit and you call us to walk in your ways. And so, Lord, would, would you open our eyes to see that today? Would your spirit give us ears to hear today? God, and when you work the miracle of a heart that would accept and, and cling to your correction today, God, would you do all of this not for our sake, but for your fame? God, as we read Revelation 5, Lord, we are not the center of the story. You are. You are the Lamb who was slain. You are the only one who could open the seals. You're the only one who could go to the cross and pay a debt that we could not pay. So would you stir our hearts to worship today? For your glory. Amen. So the first correction that he has for the scribes is a correction on what they believe. 
what they're expecting. And this is not something new. This is a theme throughout the Gospel of Mark that the people who knew of the Messiah already had a preconceived idea of what that Messiah would look like. And probably more real is what that Messiah would do for them. Right? They had an idea of what it would look like for this Messiah to come and free them and give them everything that they hoped for. And what Jesus has done is he's brick by brick (laughs) torn down their preconceived ideas of what a Messiah is. And he's done it graciously and kindly so that he can give them something better. So today we see that the scribes have this idea of what does it mean that Jesus is a descendant of David. And when they talk about David, they're talking about the David. David the king. The one that God established to rule and reign over his people. And so they have grand ideas of what that means that the Messiah would be the descendant of David. And so Jesus is coming and he's correcting some of their thoughts in this area. What we have from Scripture is we have a testimony that Jesus is biologically a descendant of David. He is in the line of David. And so Jesus, is, he doesn't shy away from this. He's not lying when, they're, they're not lying when he says that he is the son of, son of David. But that Jesus is not just David's descendant, but he's David's Lord. So as we look at this in verses 35 through 37, and Jesus taught in the temple, as he taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? This isn't... Um, He's not refuting the fact that he is the son of David, that he's a descendant of David. What we need here is we just need a quick culture lesson, a quick idea of of what Jesus is talking against, and it's this idea that the father is always greater than the son. When you look at this patriarchal society, which is what we have in, in, in God's word, who he has established, it's a, it's a line of fathers and sons. And often, the father is the greatest figure. You think about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You think about the faith of Abraham and how everybody pointed to Abraham's faith. And as great as Isaac and Jacob were in their faithfulness, now listen, before we say that, there's a caveat. They are still sinners, incredible sinners. All you got to do is read it. The stories are there. And yet God uses them despite their sin for his glory, instills in them faithfulness. But you read about Abraham, and everybody points back to Abraham. He was the father. So in this society, the father is always greater than the son. And so when Jesus is talking about, is, the, the scribes say that Christ is the son of David, he's saying that the scribes are placing, G, placing the Messiah, the Christ, right? Those are interchangeable words, the Christ and the Messiah, as someone lower than David. And so Jesus is coming and he's correcting that. And how does he do it? The same way that we should correct all of our errors, all of our uh, thoughts that are not in line with what, what, what God says, we should go to his word. And Jesus does that consistently. He goes back to his word that he spoke 
Right? We, we have in John that, that the word, Jesus, became flesh. So whenever we read God's word, it's, this is the word of God, the word of Christ. He was there when it was spoken. And so Jesus goes back and he reminds the scribes. He says, hey, what did David say? Like if you guys are saying that about, you know, the Christ is not the son of, sorry, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? He goes back to what did David actually say? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. This is awesome. This is taken from Psalm 110. And I would encourage you to go back and read that later this week, the whole psalm. But what it is, is we're being invited into the inner dialogue of the triune God. And we have it right here. Like we have God's thoughts and his words written down for us. So we don't have to guess. We can go to it. And that's what Jesus does. He reminds the scribes. No, but we have this from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. This is not God talking to David. This is God talking to someone else. The Lord, in that beginning passage, the first one, talks about Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who created, the powerful God, Yahweh. And he's speaking to David's Lord. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord. So now the question becomes, who is David's Lord? And Jesus is already bringing in the Holy Spirit. He's saying, listen, everything that was spoken to God's people was spoken by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so now you have the Spirit opening David's ears to hear what God the Father is saying to this other Lord. And so, what does that mean? Listen, the scribes had a belief that the coming Messiah would be subject to David being his descendant. And it's all throughout Scripture. The Old Testament prophets would point to the fact that, hey, this coming Jesus, this coming Messiah would be a descendant of David. Isaiah 11.1 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's father. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Jeremiah picks up this theme, and we've talked about this before, way back when we were in the Psalms of Ascent, this righteous branch that would come. Jeremiah 23.5 and 6 say this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. But David, this great king, the greatest in all of the history of Israel, was subject to someone else. And we get that from Psalm 110. The Lord... Yahweh said to my Lord, the one who would have jurisdiction in my life, the one who would have the ability to command and to tell me what I can and cannot do, that Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus says that David was invited into the inner conversation of the triune God. Spurgeon says it this way, How greatly should we prize the revelation of his private and solemn discourse with the Son, 
herein made public for the refreshing of his people. We don't, we don't even, I don't even read this very often. I don't read it as often as I should. And yet in this I have access to the mind and the heart of God the Father. So Jesus takes the scribes and he says, listen, you have missed the heart of the Father. You've missed in your preconceived ideas, you've missed who God is. Who is David's Lord? He's the preeminent Christ. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And we spent a lot of time there. And I, I would encourage you, like, hey, take this, write it out, meditate on it, memorize it. Have it quickly so that you can go to it. Because listen, as we talk about, hey, what are some places where we can go to get an understanding of who God is and what he's done in the person and work of Jesus Christ? How is Jesus Lord? We can go to Colossians 1, 15 through 20. This Jesus that's teaching in, in the temple right now, he's referring the scribes and calling them back to the teachings of David. This Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of, a, blood of his cross. Those are things that David, as great a king as he was, could not do. He could not establish a, a peace that would last forever. He could not hold all things together. And he tried. And he couldn't. He couldn't even hold his own household together. His story is one of rebellious family. And yet God used him in a mighty way to establish his presence. To create for himself a people and a temple and a place where he could be worshipped. And then even as great as Solomon was, they, they still pointed back to David. The one who was the best king, not because he did all the right things, but he was passionate in his worship for God. He was passionate in his repentance. He was passionate toward his God. And he knew his Lord. He knew his Lord so well that when he heard the voice, when he's invited into the inner dialogue, he knows who Yahweh is talking to. The Lord said to my Lord, the Messiah, the Christ, the one who would come the one who would do all of this, the one who would be preeminent over all things, the Lord of all. That's David's Lord. There's some things in here that we can just immediately take out. What, what are places where we will put the wrong emphasis on things? Where we have wrong ideas of what God is doing and who he is and then where are we getting those wrong ideas and how are we seeking to find truth are we just having good conversations 
Are we just reading books about the Bible? Or do we go back to the Bible? And so if there's, if there's something here that's very applicable, it's we need to be in God's Word. We need to know who He is. Because every time that Jesus would correct, He brings them back to Scripture. And He brings them to places that they're familiar with. And so maybe you've read it once. That doesn't mean that you have it. Maybe I've read it once, but that does not mean that I have it. I need to be in it daily, and I need to go back, and, and maybe you've read the whole thing from cover to cover. That's, that's one of the beauties of God's Word, is it's a living Word. I think you can read the same thing multiple times, and it speaks to you differently, because God Himself is speaking to you through His Word. But we will run to other things. I will run to a lot of other things. I was thinking about, like, what... What's a place maybe where, I have, where I've had a preconceived idea or I've, I've made something more important than the preeminent Christ? And I think one of them is probably you guys. I, I love the church. I love what God has done and I think it's beautiful. But I think sometimes I, I elevate that above who Christ is and what He has done. And so I have to be careful with that because He is preeminent. He is above all. He established it. It's through Him that any of this happens. Any grace, any goodness, any righteousness being worked out in our lives is because of what Christ has done. Maybe that's for you, or or maybe there's something else, but I would just say, hey, this week, take some time. You know what's really beautiful is that as soon as we ask, God's already, like, He's already worked the reason the, the will for us to ask in our own hearts. So he's going to give us the answer. He's going to share with us some correction about where has our, our theology or our doctrine or our orthodoxy been wrong. And then what we're going to see very shortly is that, that that wrong orthodoxy plays out in wrong practice often. See, Jesus continues. So now that he's corrected some of their orthodoxy, David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? If David called the Messiah Lord, how can the Messiah be under David? And Jesus, that's where he leaves them. And the great throng heard him gladly. It's a work of the Spirit there, that we would hear him gladly, that we would hear correction and say, man, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for correcting me, for teaching me. He goes on and he talks about, uh, in verse 38 through 40, what what does that wrong belief lead to? And in his teaching he said, beware of the scribes, those same scribes, who before he was talking about their theology and their beliefs, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. You see, the beauty of this is the coming of the Messiah means that actions and hearts are going to be washed white. We're going to to be able to reconcile both our beliefs and our actions. But what we're seeing is a call to correction. Correct orthodoxy means that we understand Christ's authority, His majesty, and His rule in our lives. That our lives are no longer our own. They have been purchased with a price, His shed blood. 
And now it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. You see, and out of this right belief comes true worship and the Holy Spirit empowered and applied obedience to the commandments of God. Those same commandments that we talked about a couple weeks ago, Chris talked to us about, listen, what are the great, what's the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. But we can't do any of that We can't do any of that unless the Holy Spirit has empowered and applied this truth of true worship into our lives. You see, and this is the correction that Jesus is giving the scribes. Because their wrong belief, their their belief that they could be like David. David was a human. And so they expect a human Messiah that's going to come and change them and save them out of their human troubles, their human issues. But God the whole time has had a different plan that God would send His own Son to save us from non-human issues. The issues of sin and death and brokenness that no human can fix. And so He's the the better Lord. He's the better Messiah. He's a better King. He's a better protector than David. The correction that He gives to the scribes is how they walk. How they practice. You see, he says, who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. Jesus' first correction to the scribes is, do not look to adorn yourself with an outward righteousness, but an inward cleansing. Thankfully, we're in Mark, because if we're in Matthew, these three verses are actually expounded into a whole chapter. Matthew 23, and he just blows them up. Over and over, he talks about, hey, on your outward, you're, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're dead inside, but you make the outside look pretty. And I'm not, I'm not saying that as a condemnation to wearing our, our Sunday best. I'm not saying that. I, I have huge respect. And believe it or not, these are my Sunday best. But the idea... Right? That we can somehow put on an outward appearance that would cover up the inner sin and brokenness is wrong. And that's what these scribes have been doing. And that's what, that's what we do. Matthew 23, 2 and 3, and I'm just going to pull a couple of these excerpts from Matthew 23. Verses 2 and 3, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. Listen, I know. I know what I preach. And I know that I don't practice it. I know that I I strive to do these things, and yet I fail miserably. And that's not just a a preach thing, but it's it's a beware The mother who tells you and corrects you, but then in her heart there's brokenness. Beware the father who's telling you to do one thing, but his life reflects a totally different thing. And I'm not talking about the daily struggle with sin, because that's real. And we're going to struggle with this this sanctification process that is taking place in the heart of true believers. But what what I am talking about is that if we're saying that we trust and believe Christ. And yet everything that we do 
is being put in our own righteousness. Our, all of our hopes, all of our actions, all of our cor- correctness is being put towards trying to fix the outside when the inside is dead. We've got a real problem. Just like these scribes. Don't forget. Even this is grace to the scribes. Like, he's telling them what they need. He's not leaving them in that place. He's saying, no, you can't do that. And then what's he going to do? Wait for it. Because this is his last public declaration, his last public sermon and teaching. And then he's going to walk to the cross. And he's going to execute perfect righteousness on behalf of some of these scribes that he's speaking to now. 27 and 28 from Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Mark's not saying, switching back over to the to Mark and his recording of Jesus' teachings. He's not saying, listen, you can't wear long robes. He's not outlawing a, a prescribed adornment. He's saying the problem is if your hope is in how you would appear, if you would wear those robes to cover up the, the brokenness and the emptiness and the sinfulness inside, if you would walk around and, and you like those greetings in the marketplaces where, where people will acknowledge how great you are, man, your, your hair looks good. Whatever it is that we say about our outward appearance and really what we need to be acknowledging is the work of Christ through the power of His Spirit in our lives. So the first correction is do not look to adorn yourself with an outward righteousness. His second correction is do not walk in pride but in humility. Verse 39, he says about the scribes, and they have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Sometimes we outwardly strive for those places, like we race to get to those seats. Sometimes we let people come and give them to us. Both are, if if somewhere in our heart we feel like we deserve that, both are wrong. And so we need to be careful. You know, Peter is the one that we believe is giving this uh, gospel narrative to Mark to write down. And Peter goes on in his letter to the church in 1 Peter 5 and 7. He talks about pride and humility. He says this, 1 Peter 5, 5-7, Likewise, you, are, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Close yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. We're quick to jump to that last part. Cast your cares on Jesus because He cares for you without the context of the humility that, that Peter's calling for. Why will, why will you have no cares? Because in humility you recognize that Christ is preeminent. Christ is sufficient. Christ is everything that I need. He is is the mighty hand of God. 
And if, if he wants me to be exalted, he'll exalt me. And if he doesn't, then that's okay too. Because one day, I will stand with him, just like we talked about, worshiping forevermore. That's awesome. Peter calls the people not to walk in pride, not to seek the, the best seats in the synagogues or the places of honor at feasts, but to walk in humility. And then what we see is that in our pride, do not neglect or abuse the outsider Jesus cares for. Verse 40, they're doing all these things. right? They're, they're trying to posture. They're trying to place themselves in seats of honor. And they're doing it at the expense of those that Christ has come to save. Verse 40, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers they will receive the greater condemnation. In your, in your pride, do not neglect or abuse the outsider that Jesus cares for. Micah 6.8 says this, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Listen, this is what it looks like. This is what the practice flowing out of right belief looks like. That we would walk in humility. That we would seek to, to take care of the outsider, to take care of those that are being taken advantage of. That we would mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep. That if, there's, if it's within our power to change circumstances, yes. To change those circumstances for those that we can the problem comes when we think that we can do these things in and of our own strength, in and of our flesh, without the mighty hand of God, without the power of Christ. Listen, we talked about it. If this is true, if we have to have right orthodoxy and right orthopraxy, if we can't have one way or the other, and I believe that we can't. Now there's... There's going to be true belief that we already talked about has to work itself out in the sanctification process. And that looks like repentance and then belief. And repentance and then belief. But it's got to have repentance. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm saying that we can't have the right practice without a trust in the gospel. Without a trust in the atoning work of Christ. We can't go out and do these things. I can't execute justice. I can't love kindness. And I can't walk humbly. But I have one who has come and done it in my place. Again, we said that, listen, this is his last teaching. And now he's going to go. And he's going to spend time in the garden. And in the garden, he's going he's to pray to the Father. And he's going to say, God, it's not my will, but your will be done. He's going to execute perfect obedience to the Father. David's Lord is going to say to the Lord, Yahweh, what would you have me do? Where would you have me go? I know the cup that you've given me. If there's another way, do it the other way, but, but I'll do it. Because this is what you have ordained since the beginning of time to save humanity. To save His church, His bride, those who are in Christ. And so he prays that prayer and then he goes and he, and he, 
he has the Last Supper and he's, and he's praying with his disciples and he's talking to them and he's teaching them. And then he's going to go to the cross. And at the cross, we have the Lion of Judah, the King, standing as the Lamb in a way that it looks like he was slain. And he takes this whole kingdom, everything that they had hoped for, and he flips it on his head and he says, this is the way that I'm coming to do it. Mark 10.45 has just been the anthem of our time in Mark. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what we have to believe. That's where we have to place our hope. That even today as I've failed, it's not that... I can go out and do better, but it's that Christ has done better for me. And out of worship, gratitude for what He's done, He then puts His Spirit inside of me and it gives me a righteousness that's not my own to actually walk in. That's crazy. And so whether I continue, whether I have sin, it leads to worship because I thank, thank God for the grace that He has covered my sin or whether I have righteousness, it leads to worship because I said, thank God for putting that righteousness in me. Now all of my life, in both repentance and in obedience, is worship unto God. And this is what he's calling us to. This is what he's calling the scribes to. And not only is he calling them to it, but he's enabling them to do it by walking to the cross, by going to the cross and dying, Covering our sin. If we are in Christ, our sin is covered on the cross. He paid the debt we could not pay. And it wasn't, it wasn't a continual debt like the sacrifices before. It was a one-time thing where he goes to the cross and everything is paid for there. But it didn't stop there. And we can't, we can't stop there because he rose again. And in his rising, he proved that he has defeated sin and death. And the righteousness that he promises that we can walk in, we can actually do. We can be obedient. We can follow his commandments. Because it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So this morning we're called to repent. Maybe some things have shown up in your heart and in your mind where you're like, am I doing that? Are there things that I've elevated above Christ and His preeminence that I need to just confess to God? Have I put my hope and my trust in my own practice, my own ability to to walk humbly, my own ability to do justice, my own ability to love kindness, my own ability to hold all things together? Maybe, Maybe you're a control freak like me and You're having a hard time there? Today, just surrender. Repent. God, I can't do that. But you have. Thank you. Forgive me for trying in and of my own flesh. And then we get to rejoice. We get to believe that he has done it. That he is sufficient. And that we can walk in these things. And so it's this Life of repentance and belief. And so today I pray that we would be obedient. That out of the working of the Spirit as He's speaking to us today.
And as he speaks to us through his word throughout the week, that we would quickly come to repentance. And maybe we need to do that with our spouses or with our children or with our friends, with our families, with our co-workers. There's a repentance that God is calling us to, and it shouldn't just be a silent prayer of confession every week. (laughs) Although that is beautiful, it also needs to play out in all of our lives where we actually come and say, you know what? I sinned against you this week. I was wrong. And it's not, it's not condemnation. It's not self-condemnation. And really, I don't even need your forgiveness because I have the forgiveness of Christ. But in order for our relationship to be reconciled, will you forgive me? Will you practice what Christ has done? Will you forgive me? And so I pray that we would be that, that people today. That we would be a people that walk in repentance towards our God, towards one another. And we would see the righteousness of Christ grow in us. Again, not for our glory. So that people would say, man, they have something. There's something beautiful there. And it sounds like, from what they're saying, it sounds like it's Jesus. And I want to know him. And I want to treasure him. I want to enjoy him forever. God, we thank you so much for a word of correction. We thank you that your love for the scribes would not leave them in their sin, but would call them out of it, and then you have made a way. You have made a way through your Son. You love the world so much that you gave your one and only Son to die in place of sinners who would just simply call upon your name and believe. God, may we be a people that walk in repentance, that walk in belief. That as those two things are true, we would also see the Spirit work in us obedience and faithfulness and righteousness. God, I thank you for the areas in our lives where we see the righteousness of Christ displayed. I thank you for the areas in our life where we see repentance God, would you grow those two things in your church for your fame and your glory. We ask this in your name. Amen.